thing that gets you in. But if you keep your tactics to yourself and you don't kind of distribute them with the customer and with their other agencies, you're going to be stuck. Welcome to Marketing Unfucked, the only podcast that helps you unfuck your marketing by hosting conversations with both badasses in the industry. We are your hosts, Siobhan and Russell, and today we're joined by Simo Ahava, where we talk all things communication and control. Let's do it. All right, let's do this. So, um, keep it simple. Simo, how do we unfuck marketing? In, in a myriad of ways, I think, and all of them are, well, most of them are wrong, I think, when people start thinking about how to kind of, you know, when, when people, in, especially in the digital, I think people always look at tools. So, the, so, they, so they always try to find the next tool that will help them with their issues. And the older I get, and the more experienced I get, and the more cynical I get, the more I understand that it's it's actually quite rarely about the tools. But we, we live in this bubble where everything seems to be about the tools. And, you know, you always try to look beyond. Like, what, what is the, you know, if, if, if my kid comes in from daycare with a bleeding arm, I'm, my, my first instinct isn't like, how much blood is there? My first question is, is like, how did this happen? And how could we maybe prevent that it doesn't happen in the future again? And I think the same applies to marketing in many ways. So trying to find the, the prime move or trying to find the reason why we have all these symptoms that force us to look for new tools and new solutions. And I have like a, I have a super elaborate answer that I thought of while, while preparing for this, for this interview, but I'm just going to skip it and go for the more offhand and winging it kind of answer, because I think that makes more sense. But the crux of the crux of the matter is really about communication. Like that's all it is. Like we, we can go back the chain of problems that caused us to figure out that we need a new tool. And we can look at things like corporate culture, you know, we can look at hiring practices. We can look at, you know, inefficiency in the developer team. We can look at inefficient campaign. We can look at all of those things, but they're in the end, they're all just symptoms of something bigger at hand. And what I've realized over the years, and I've talked about this many times to audiences that just don't seem to get it, or maybe I'm just wrong and you can, you can correct me on this, but it's always about communication. Like there's always every single problem you come across with can be drawn a parallel with two people who refuse or are una- unable to talk to each other. Like that's the problem. If you have a marketing problem, in your com- if you have a campaign that doesn't work as efficiently as you thought it would, it's, it's not about because you have the wrong tool. It's maybe it's not even because you designed the campaign incorrectly. It's always because there's some part of that design where you were supposed to communicate your plans correctly to others where you failed to do so or someone else did. And so what I've tried to figure out over these X number of years that I've been disenchanted with marketing really is how do we fix those communication problems? Like how do we get people to communicate? And you, you both know the stereotype, you know, you know, the stereotype that it's always about marketing and IT, like marketers have to suffer a slowly functioning IT. That's the stereotype. And every single time somebody mentions that stereotype, an angel loses its wings. Like that's how it works because we're just propagating the same stereotype. We're actually inflaming the situation even further. So what if we start from the premise that the very first thing you need to do when you start working with a new customer, start working with a new campaign is to make sure that everybody who's even remotely involved in that campaign needs to establish a communication strategy. So we need to figure out how do we communicate efficiently? How do we communicate periodically? How do we exchange ideas without having these silly myths and stereotypes bogging us down? And so that's what I have to try to figure out. I don't know how to formalize it. That's just I just know that that's where the problem lies. So I'm going to pick on, up on something you mentioned there because you said you've you know that this is a problem which I completely agree with. 
but you have a problem in communicating this to audiences. So there is a fault there, <laughs> and how can we? How, how can you unfuck that? <laughs> Well, I mean, we can go on a completely different track in this talk and start talking about public speaking and how that is completely a fucked. You know? but, but, but I think it's more the, the, the way you can educate audiences and, and what it is and, and how you communicate that is, is kind of one topic. But actually, is yep. it the ability to distill at multiple different levels of understanding that is the issue that we see? And this is not just in marketing. I think this is in explaining anything to anyone in a group is the ability to distill it because you understand it, which is the first hurdle is understanding yourself and then distilling it to all of the audiences. Yeah, so that that's actually an interesting parallel. And I think that that is actually part of the problem. So conferences and public speaking, it's all about the ego, right? There's somebody talking in front of a stage who's a self-proclaimed authority and and the audience is like paying money to receive those nuggets of wisdom. So of course it goes to anyone's head. And the reason why I've actually stopped talking about this topic at conferences is because it just doesn't make any sense. That's that's not the venue. I can tell a thousand people that, hey, you should communicate better, but that's not a takeaway. That, that's like a fact of life. Everybody knows, of course, I should communicate better. Like that's that's not the wisdom they pay to hear. But so so that's that's unfair. It's it's a it's an imbalance. There should be a discussion about this. Communication is emergent. It's, it's not something that one person uh, comes into an organization and says, this is how you should communicate, even though a lot of man- management consulting is just that. But what it, what it actually actually requires is that, first of all, egos have to be dropped. Like, I can go as the, the developer, analytics, marketing person into a team and say that these are my requirements for this project to be successful. That's not going to be very helpful. Instead... I need to explain thoroughly what my expertise is and what my part of the big puzzle is. And then I need to hear from everyone else what their expertise is. You know, we need to lower those barriers between us and figure out where potential friction lies. Like what are the potential hinges in our cooperation that might cause problem when we start working on this project? And that's what that's the first step. So this sounds like a silly, you know, get to know each other game at a at a at a summer camp or something. But it really that is what it is. We need to build those relationships. And once you have that kind of a communication going on, you need to nurture it. Like, you know, you, if if you talk once to someone, it doesn't make you best friends. Whereas in a project, you're expected to function as a fully as a seamless unit in a way. So I think that one of the reasons why I've had a, such a hard time explaining is because it really is and I'll use the word again, it really is emergent. It's something that kind of is shaped within the confines of each project. It just requires that everybody who joins that project or is part of that process of of cooperation and building something understands that this is what's required. Because it's so easy. Like it's it's it, there's such a big inner momentum in most organizations to keep things to your best and to make sure that the marketing team works separately and the IT team works separately because they have different incentives. The marketing mm-hmm. team doesn't benefit one bit from the IT team squashing more bugs. Like there, there's no shared incentive model there. The IT team doesn't care one bit if you manage to you know, lower the cost per acquisition for some campaign. That, that, those are not mutually shared concerns. What they should be worried about are the overall goals of the project, like how to get more customers, how do we create better apps and services. And those are the things where the cooperation has to happen. I think you just hit it on the head because you said it's the overall goal of the company. And it's like when you kept on, when you talked about tools and everything, I started thinking about, you know, this whole productivity thing that's going on where everyone has all these tools and they're trying to figure out how to be more productive and how to get things, but they don't even know their own purpose or their own vision or their own goal in using them. 
And that's exactly what this is, right? You're hiding behind a tool because it's a way that you don't have to communicate and nobody is aligned with the one business objective yeah. or the overarching kind of goal. And if you have that, then communication becomes easier. I'm not saying it's necessarily the golden ticket to it, but yeah. um, then how do you solve for the whole the silo thing, right? Like you said, yeah. I think marketing and IT are highly influenced. I think squashing all those bugs is quite important to marketing, yeah. but um, they're not seeing it that way. And, and, and how is that solved? Yeah. So, so one of the examples I always have in, when, I, when I talk about this is I, I used to work at a Finnish IT company that specializes in agile and they, they were like, they were world famous for it. They, they organized a lot of workshops around it and, and they just had a wonderful model for working with customers. And one of the customers we had was this, this huge Finnish e-commerce customer. And we were brought in to help them develop their online sales capabilities. So build services and sites and, and apps and everything, the whole growth part of their online part, uh, because they also have a lot of like offline sales. And, and we managed beautifully. Like we, we built these agile teams, multidisciplinary teams. There were designers, there was back-end, front-end developers, everybody. There were coaches, there was daily stand-ups, there was weeklies, retrospect, all, like everything part of an agile workflow. And, and it was really, really well done. And we got amazing results. And the ROI of that work was really great. So we, we thought that we had, we had done a really, really good job. But something was always a bit off because every time we needed to do some trivial stuff, such as get someone to rotate out of the team, because that was part of how the company worked. It kept things fresh by rotating people at their own will. Of course, we won't like rotate them in the way without them knowing about it. Uh, or, or maybe we needed a new computer or maybe we, we needed to shuffle things around and, and get some more budget. Anytime a request for or an, like a requisition went outside the boundaries of that online sales team, things just jarred to a halt. So while we had achieved great success in building this agile team that really had a great culture and really had a great communication strategy, something was off. And then one, one day I was just about to stop working at that client. I went to the headquarters where we worked and I, I understood what the problem was. And the problem was that, so the, the online sales team was situated in this huge floor, which had kind of an open floor plan, but it was surrounded by glass windows. So it was like a closed space with, with you know, aisles going around the glass compartment. And what, what I saw was all these, you know, corporate people in suits around their coffee vending machines, grabbing a cup of coffee and then kind of just looking interestingly, like curiously inside the glass windows and seeing like knocking on the window and seeing what's going on. And I realized that we had built an aquarium you know, we, we had built a zoo <laughs> where all this magical stuff happens, but we were just a curiosity to the corporation around us. We were nothing more. We were just one fancy thing, you know, people with hoodies and colorful clothes and post-it notes on the walls. And then these people in suits who actually made all the decisions were just looking at, wow, that looks interesting. I'm glad we don't have to be there because we have all these suits and we need to keep things, you know, matter of fact and, and important. And that's when I realized that the problem was that we had built a great communication machine, but we had failed to build the communication structures that extend to the entire organization. And that's why things started plateauing. You know, we didn't get past certain milestones simply because we couldn't extend our needs to match those of the organization around us. So the next big step, and I, I don't work there anymore, but the next big step was to kind of do a case study of what worked in that team and try to get the rest of the organization to understand that. But that was just an example that, you know, we can build an amazing micro team, which is a good first step, you know, build a team that communicates fluently, make sure that you have good experiences of, of working on communication, and then just start scaling that up to the entire organization. 
Because until you do, you're only ever going to be like a curiosity, like a little snow globe that you can shake and see how things happen. But you're, you're, you're never going to influence the company around you until you kind of scale that process up. So communication is just, it's just, it's so easy to say, just talk to each other and just, just uh, work transparently. That works fine when there's only two people, four people, six people, eight people, 10 people. But when you have 50 different teams working in a, in a company of, of 500,000 people, then, you know, it gets a bit more difficult. And we have examples of this all around the world where, you know, agile startups suddenly stagnate and become like the worst possible organization blueprints there can even be. And, and like it's quite often hidden behind a buzzword when it comes to, oh, that's the politics of working in a big company. And you're like, yes, but we've managed to do it in isolation or we managed to do it up until a certain number. And there are, there are external factors outside of your team that start having more and more influence as you grow. Finance has a much bigger influence on a marketing function in organization in the middle, at the start, it has everything, yep. then it has hardly anything, and then it starts to be a significant factor in budget optimizations and distributions and things like that. So it's the it's the inagility of teams outside of they're probably a very agile group that then causes a lot of these issues. And it's you see the sort of the hub and spoke way yep. of setting up teams. All of these things, I think, it's very good and easy to understand them in a concept in a book. But the when you apply that to a business, you also have to understand what is going on in that business, what that business needs to get over the first lot of hurdles. Is that what you're also sort of getting to there? To a point, yes. But if you if you like if you dance to the company's fiddle you're not going to get far because there's a reason why the company hasn't done it before you know the, the, it can be a it can be a legacy of the company being a hundred year old company with with a with a family inheritance running it and, and a refusal to to take the advice it could be a privately owned company so no reason to trust the shareholders opinions about anything or it could be a publicly owned company and the shareholders determine exactly what should be done so there there are many reasons and and like one key thing is that momentum is always against transparency and communication. Like always, it's it's always easier to work in silos. It's always easier to work with rigid budgets that are not shared across the organization. And it's always kind of best to have some competition within the organization to compete incentives against each other, even though no one's going to admit this. So that's why it's a, there's a lot of momentum against getting communication to work. And I, I, I firmly believe, and I firmly believe that if the organization is mature to let that happen, at least on a small scale, it's going to pay off. There is, in Agile, there's definitely is a critical mass at which point you need to start thinking about a hybrid model where it's not just about, you know, transparency and everything's flowing, you know, beautifully across organizations. There has to be a hybrid model in place where there's still room for for silos, but and, and there's a critical point where where you reach. Is it 400 people, 600 people? I don't know, uh, but it certainly does does happen that you know every single spoke you add to that hub and spoke model, they're always going to be communicating across spokes as well. It's not always going to go through the hub. So the more people you have, the more communication paths and the more chance for like a a really broken game of Chinese whispers ensues. So that's the that's the moment we are fighting against. But when we again pull it back to digital marketing, I think that digital marketing is by nature so incredibly multidisciplinary. You know, we're, we're working with creatives, we're working with data, 
We're working with full stack of, of development tools. We're working with regulation. We're working with, with hiring pro- practices as well. We're everywhere in the organization. So it makes, to me, it makes no sense that there's a, a, you know, a separate analyst team and a separate marketer team and a separate, separate IT team it doesn't really make sense to me to have them because that that really incentivizes silos when instead starting from building a team that has components from all of these and working together to solve those problems seems like a good first step. It might be very difficult. It might not work everywhere, but it certainly seems like a good first step. And to have those like, you know, daily stand-up meetings and weekly meetings so that everybody just says in 15 minutes, like, what are you working on today? That's all I want to know. That's how you squash bugs. Yeah. I, I you know, a front-end developer says, yeah, I'm working on, on a GTM implementation and I'm, up, and I'm about to deploy the, the um, you know, the data layer object. And, and then I noticed that they're using the incorrect format for it. And just because they mentioned it in their 15-minute daily, I, I knew that this is exactly what I can work on now. Yeah, I was um, back when I still had a job uh, <laughs> for a company. The team I managed was the marketing team, and it was really interesting because we did this experiment. Because I am so data, uh, I come from a data background. It was easy. It, it, it was something I always wanted to be involved in. So what would really happen was I was trying to have that communication just between the BI, IT, and data type of team with the mm-hmm. marketing team. And I remember those meetings where the marketers suddenly are like, "Wait a second, how did we not know that?" Or, yeah. "Wait, you're doing that. That means I can do this." And just seeing that light bulb go off made everyone not just me, everyone realized how important it is that you do have to yeah. have that communication. But, yeah. you know, and I don't think it necessarily takes away this whole concept of a silo because there are definitely whole departments in that company that didn't need to get involved in that conversation. But just the fact that we have now had the tendency of taking digital marketing and making that PPC, social media, content, SEO, like that stuff, and then everything else they consider IT or data, and they've even made these mini silos there, that's, I think, what's stopping some of that communication. Yeah. I think people forget that really they're all marketing. Like you you can't market well without a good data person, without a good IT person, front-end developer. You just can't. So they need to kind of become their own marketing hub. Yeah. Um, I think that might be where we're going wrong a little bit. Yeah. And, there, and there's also the notion which I completely understand but the notion of just throw like offloading your problems to agencies and and so many agencies have their own way of working and they benefit from a silo again because they can then show uh, silo makes it easier to attribute success you know it's easier to show that you know you hired us on June 17 and you know on June 18 we had great results so there has to be a correlation there has to be an attribution so that's that's why agencies you know well, I still work for agencies, so I don't want to, you know, put down that model too much. I was, I was sitting there just going, <laughs> but you know, the, the agencies, of course, they have an incentive to build or to steer the project in a way that's profitable for them. Like no, like agencies don't want to make themselves redundant, and in the same way, no, no team in a company wants to make themselves redundant. So there's a again, there's momentum against the type of altruistic knowledge sharing that transparency really requires. You know, I. When I go to a client, I'm, I'm sick and tired of consulting enough to really have an incentive that when I go to a client, I want to teach them everything I can so that I don't have to work there anymore. So, so for me, it's, it's, the problem is solved by my general, you know, you know, my general just being bored of everything attitude. But there are, of course, companies that need to make a profit and need to retain those clients. But in those cases, too, I'm still wondering, like, why is the typical model to create a lock-in? Like, like, why is vendor lock-in so important 
Like, how are these partners so insecure of their tools and of themselves that they need to create these logins? And I, I've never understood that. Uh, I think one of the key issues that we see a lot from a consultancy world is the the lack of understanding of sort of tactical answers to questions versus actually helping someone with a strategy. Most people don't do any form of strategy and their their concern comes from, I'm going to run out of tactical things that I've t- I tell them how to do it, rather than think, actually, I can take this customer on a journey and at, at all points of the future journey, which I don't know where we're going with that, I'm able to help with steering the ship rather than like literally pulling up the sails because you can teach someone how to pull up those sails but you can't necessarily teach someone what they're gonna face on that journey and I think that is the issue that a lot of more junior consultants but also brands who and agencies they're more concerned about oh what if they learn how to do PPC on Google Ads and you're like well that isn't the value add that is the output. That's not where your you, your yep. value should be. Your value should be like, what do they do when shit hits the fan? And move into a more consulting role than a tactical deployment role because you can be replaced easily. There are 50,000 people who can manage PPC ads at a decent level. But to be the person who knows the answer to the questions that you don't even know they're going to ask that's what people want to buy. And that's where you get legacy value. Yeah. And, and you know, most of the time when, when you enter, an, uh, I completely agree with that. And most of the time when you enter a, a customer uh, with a pitch, you're not pitching the thing you want to do in the long run. You're pitching the thing that gets you in. But if you keep your tactics to yourself and you don't kind of distribute them with the customer and with their other agencies, you're going to be stuck, do, stuck doing that micro-optimization that you got your foot in the door with. Whereas if you let go of your kind of ego in that way as well, your company ego, and if you, if you choose your strategy to be of transparency and of, of transporting your tactics so that the company can kind of digest them and, and add them to their own toolkit, you can then start focusing other stuff. And this is actually where the multidisciplinary model is beautiful because if there is fluent communication between different roles, then every single time you join those meetings and join those projects, you're going to be learning a shitload of stuff. Like you're going to be the learner there. Like every single time I, I started at this company that I mentioned, I started as the analyst and, and very soon, just by osmosis, by being in those teams, I built my developer skills just by listening to people who are infinitely better than me at, at, at front-end development and back-end development and learned so much along the way. And now I'm doing that stuff full-time. So it's, it's, it's if I had been the analyst and always proud of my chops and always keeping making sure that I am the expert hired I would I wouldn't have time to allow myself to learn new things and I wouldn't have the incentive to do so so I think it's a it's a win-win situation for most the the downside of of transparency and the downside of building communication strategies and the downside of breaking those silos is that it's expensive like there there's a tangible cost to it you have to you almost necessarily need full-time employees or full-time consultants for that. It's impossible to do a change by just working one hour a week with a customer. So yeah, those are expensive products, projects, but I, I also think that the outcome is always going to be more reliable. Like one of the things about Agile is that the goals are always reevaluated, whereas with a typical kind of milestone-driven um, project, your, your goals might be reevaluated once every six months. And that's just way too slow if you're building something new. 
as Russell probably has to be smells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. So we got you on, and we haven't even mentioned anything, ta- like topic-wise, that people know you for. So That's perfectly fine. Which is which is perfectly <laughs> fine. We've done two thirds of the podcast <laughs> without mentioning any tagging. I barely said the word Google. So I just want to use this last sort of third of the podcast for you to kind of wax lyrical around server side, because it's something that a lot of people say with no knowledge of what it actually is. So if you could do a Simo Summary, Simo summary. There you go. There's a new podcast for you. Simo summary of server side. That's a lot of S's. And then we can just talk through some of the use cases that brands would have, which will probably lead you nicely into giving yourself a pitch at the end of this. Yeah. um, So I I think that, well, server side itself predates all the discussions we're now having in, in digital marketing and digital analytics, like it's a, you know, the internet is built with client server architecture. So we have client machines and then we have server machines. And those lines have somewhat blurred uh, with certain frameworks and, and certain kinds of technology stacks. But today, I think we talk about server side in terms of like server side tagging, server side proxy, server side analytics, server side render, all these different things. And if I had to kind of distill the whole idea of server-side into one overarching concept, just to make discussion around it a bit easier and more focused, it's about control. Like, that's what it is. It's about controlling whatever it is that the client is supposed to do. And the, the reason why there's a, there's a need for this is that, you know, for the past, you know, 20, 30 years, especially in, in MarTech, vendors have had free reign over what happens in the user's browser. It's been their playground. Uh, Just by virtue of installing a piece of JavaScript from the vendor servers, browser JavaScript doesn't, or JavaScript in general, doesn't have a mechanism to differentiate between scripts that are run inline inside code and scripts that are loaded from third-party servers. Once that third-party script is is loaded and rendered into computer memory or device memory, there's no way to separate whether a, a method call happens from a third-party script or from the site script. So it's, it's, there are content security policies that you can use, of course, but once the script is loaded, that privilege is lost. So the problem is that we're loading all of this stuff from vendor servers, and we're trusting that it does what it's supposed to do and nothing else. But I have yet to find a single vendor script that does exactly what it's supposed to do and nothing else. The incentive is just too there for a vendor to add a piece of JavaScript that maybe collects something a bit beyond uh, what it was allowed to collect. Uh, Classic examples are anything that can be used for a fingerprint. That's like what almost every library does. It collects just way too much information just so they can build a fingerprint. And the more drastic examples are these, like um, what, what, what Facebook is doing with advanced matching and what Google is, is doing similarly as well, where you know, user data is scraped from pages without the user being able to prevent that. So when they type an email address, uh, the, it's not a very complicated algor- algorithm. All the script has to do is just check for the at symbol and then collect the data on both sides of it. So this is a problem. This means that you're relinquishing control of one of your most vital assets which is your user's browser. And it's, I'm talking about the user now. So user is relinquishing control. They, they lose agency. 
if you follow like privacy and web browser standards discussions, you often see them talk about how the browser is the user agent. And that means that the browsers are there to represent the needs of the user. And for some reason, this has gone completely you know, upside down over the last 20 years. And now there's an overcorrection against it. So every single browser is committed to somehow change this dynamic, but it's not enough. So, so companies that really want to get better control of those data flows have now started looking at service side. Now, one thing I want to mention at this point is that when I talk about control, it doesn't have positive or negative connotations directly. Like you can have more control to secure your users' privacy. You can have more control to secure their right to their data. You can have more control to prevent vendors from receiving personal data unchecked. Or you can have more control to do all sorts of nasty stuff, even worse things that could ever be done in the device because you can now, you have the full scalability of, of, of the cloud for polling APIs and for enriching user data, for building identity tables, for, you know. So server-side is about, con it's about control, whether you use it for good or bad, it's completely up to your organization. But there's certainly, um, there are many people working towards building it into something good. And I think there's an equally large population, if not larger, trying to figure out how to use it for, for bad stuff as well. Yeah, that's the thing with server-side, right? It's um. I mean, this is what I'm seeing a lot, that clients are like, oh, but we can just go server side and then we don't have to deal with privacy. Now telling yep. me that is really a problem, right? Because I love privacy. But the fact that people are thinking that way, the fact that yep. the majority of people who I speak to, who are not obviously well-versed in what all this means, they tie that together. Server yep. side means we can avoid the upcoming regulations, let's say. Yep which is giving this whole negative twist to it. And, and it, it, like you said, it can do so many positive things. And I just like somehow wish we could just switch that dialogue around a little bit and make this a positive thing. Yeah, I think that's, that's a testament to just the complexity of the regulations. I think, I think that's the problem. And it's also a problem of, of, conf of conflicting terminology. So server-side uses terms like, or we use terms like first party and third party in a very technical sense. You know, they, they're referring to the domains we're sending data to and, and matching them against the domains that are sending the data. So there's an actual like URL origin question here. Whereas first, side, first party data and third party data also have like legal definitions and or at the very least they are used in legal discussions as well. So we assume that by moving to first party data collection in the technical sense, which means that we're, we're hosting a, a proxy on our subdomain, we're also not collecting third party data anymore. I think that's like the the gist of it. And, and then they hear that, by the way, as a, as a, as a bonus, you'll also be able to avoid ad blockers and, and uh, you'll also be able to enrich the data. So I think that as, as with all things, the, the evil path is always going to be the one with least, less restrictions. And it's, it's going to be paved so beautifully and so easily for people to uh, make use of. One thing I do want to say as a, as a kind of hat, hat tip to Google is that they're server-side GTM is a solution fully owned by the company that deploys it. So it, it resides in the company's own cloud stack, in their own server stack. There's, there's no umbilical core to Google. The only thing that happens occasionally is that a, a JavaScript file is downloaded, which represents the container. But there's no phoning home with that data. You, you get to choose exactly what is being sent out. So I think that's a wonderful feature. Of course, out of the box, 
the the built-in templates are certainly Google templates in a very real way. They they do collect too much, and there's no built-in mechanisms for for um, compliance for co- constant compliance, for example, under e-privacy, and and things like IP address um, obfuscation have to be checked on. Like if you want to completely obfuscate the IP address, so so there's still a lot of work to be done. But I I still have to say that it's it's a wonderful thing that we have this blank slate that our company can own because the technology itself is pretty sound. And then but it just requires a lot of savvy to navigate past the the potential kind of um, potential pitfalls where where you might be giving too much even if you move to the server. Yeah, I think just a sort of a, a final point for comment then is the they do very well on the tech front. So GTM server side, I agree with you, and I potentially shouldn't put this on video, but I agree with you. It's a fantastic product. I think they market it as the solution, and one of the outputs of that solution is to make your business privacy-friendly. And it's not, and I presume, and going back to our, the original t- conversation from a communications perspective, it's not the tech team that have built a fantastic product, which is exactly what it should be, no umbilical to Google, etc. but they market it, and therefore that marketing is picked up by everyone and their mother who's tried to do a reseller agreement for the, the deployment of this, that this is how you solve privacy concerns for organizations. and. It doesn't fix GA privacy concerns, whether you're in three or four. It does not fix any of your ECRM privacy concerns just because you have a server-side tag manager now. And I, I just wanted to get your sort of final summary points on, on that and, and what businesses should think about and how they should approach that in a smarter way because I think that that's probably one of the biggest areas of concern that I have talking to business owners is that they think the solution answers it. Yeah, I, I think that for that, a good litmus test is, is that if a vendor, especially one who is currently in like 1,500 different court cases around these things, if a vendor suggests that their tool is privacy compliant, that's a red flag. Like regardless, I, I, I especially if it's like 100% privacy compliant, because like, we go back to the very first topic of today. You know, tools don't bring you salvation. A tool doesn't make your organization privacy compliant. A tool can have toggles and and mechanisms built in that help you, uh, in certain means, um, be compliant. But privacy isn't, you know, privacy isn't something that is a checklist of things you have to get have, and then your solution is privacy compliant. So, service like Google Tag Manager has the means and the possibilities to make your company treat your users much better. Whether that's from a from regulatory point of view or from just an ethical point of view, it has the means to do that. You can do you can add additional stop checks before the data is shipped from the user to the vendor. You can clear it of personal data, like the the DPA recommendations for using GA with a server-side proxy. I mean, yeah, it renders GA into a useless tool, but you have the technological means to do that. Service-side tagging enables that, whereas client-side methods don't. And you can, of course, build your own proxies, your own data collectors. You can add your snow, snow plows and your, your BigQuery um, ingesters and whatever you like. Service-side gives you that. The, the question is, how much is Google interested in this POV? And how much do they just want people to deploy the GA tag and the Google Ads conversion tag and the conversion linker and the uh, browser-side third-party and consent mode? Consent, yeah. 
but that's all like my approach is that ser- server side is just trying to it's, it's a distraction from the discussions the company should be having it's it's as if you know they've just decided after five years of deliberation to do something about this GDPR thing and they're sitting around the table and they're just about to start talking about how do we hire a DPO and how do we start serving DSRs when suddenly the door to the room opens and someone comes in, hey, Google just released a server-side solution. And then they drop the discussion and start working with server-side. It's a distraction. It's a, it's a shiny bauble that people are now following and they shouldn't stop having that important discussion just because a new tool appeared, but instead they should respect the fact that now a new type of discussion can be had where we have much more liberties to be privacy compliant and be GDPR compliant and respect our users' wishes with this new fangled tool. But we have to understand that it was built by a company that might not be as sensitive to our customers' privacy needs as we are. So that's the discussion that should be had. That's why I generally don't recommend server-side, any form of server-side, whether it's analytics or tagging or anything, I don't recommend it as a blanket solution. There are additional problems like cost as well and, and the learning curve, but it's also because it doesn't bring you salvation. But if you look at it as a blank slate that you can use to take control of data flows, then I think it's definitely something that every company working in digital should take a look at and evaluate and not just jump to it because it's... it's um, and, and just... The worst thing that I think is happening right now is the companies like Facebook and Google are actively pressuring users to start using those tools. And I don't like that. I think that that speaks volumes about how concerned these big vendors are about their data ingestion rates. Um, and I, I, I'm not happy with that at all. And I, I hope that that discussion, I hope the community has a louder voice in this case. And I really think they do. I think there's a there's a huge push from loud people, loud voices in the community trying to make server-side tagging a, a, a good and benevolent solution over what the vendors are trying to do for it. And I, I certainly am proud to be one of those voices. Couldn't agree more. We'll wrap up now. Thanks a lot for your time today, Simo. Could you let everyone listening or watching know what you're up to and where they can find you on the internet? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, the, the best place to find me, I think, today is Twitter, where I'm least cynical. If you connect with me on LinkedIn, you'll be sorely disappointed at the quality of my of my posts and 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 me in general as a human being. But on Twitter, I still try to stay uh, stay positive <laughs> and, and less cynical. But so over the last couple of years, me, my wife and I have worked on on Simmer, which is an uh, an online course platform, and we've released a couple of courses. And just today, just before that, we started recording this interview. So this is this is when people listen to it. Of course, this is going to be old news, but. We released a promo of our next course, which is going to be JavaScript for digital marketers. So we're trying to solve the unsolvable, which is make every single digital marketer a JavaScript pro. And we're going to release that course next Tuesday. So that's October 11th uh, for enrollment. But today we just released the promo. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, so it's out there now and, and it's been a huge undertaking. I'm looking forward to some R&R, which I probably won't get, but would like to relax a bit. Oh, congratulations. I'll be looking for that promo. So that's it, guys, for another episode of Marketing on Fucked. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, and all other podcast platforms. Subscribe, like, and all that jazz. Siobhan and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much for having me.